Good afternoon. I trust you had a good lunch and you're wide awake, right? <laughs> if you don't know me, my name is Tom Green, and um, my wife, Debbie, and I lead the, uh, our newest family uh, of churches over in Arlington, and uh, that is a great blessing for us. If you're here today and you're part of the Arlington ministry, would you stand for a moment? I've seen a lot of people walking around. Keep standing. I want you to see how loved they are. If you love these guys, stand and applaud them. Thank you. Casey, thanks for that uh, introduction. To the idea of story. Now I have to rearrange my whole sermon because that was the first three points. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> you know, when Ronnie was uh, when Ronnie was up earlier, he mentioned something about me being as self-righteous as you, or more self more self-righteous than you. It's not true. I can prove it because he's really uncomfortable with this whole idea of story to begin with, you know, so it, uh, it's a real struggle for him to kind of engage and, and see what we're doing in this way. I want to share with you a little bit about where I'm coming from in terms of uh, sharing some ideals with you in, in terms of, of story and how we use that in ministry, how we use that to work in the lives of, of people. And I kind of want to kind of show you how it, the whole idea got birthed inside of me and, and, and how it began to arise and what God uh, taught me along the way. And I just want to share some of that background, and I hope that, that you'll find that meaningful. And let me say right up front with this idea of story, what I found is that I mentioned that word, and that word now has become associated with me and my ministry. A lot of people talk to me about story, and I, as I listen to them, I realize they got all kinds of different things in their mind when they use the word story. Uh, some of them uh, maybe picture the big story, the epic story, God's story uh, that we put together from the scriptures. Uh, some of them think, I'm just going to tell them a family sitting around the fireplace story, and somehow that's going to make spiritual sense along the way. Uh, others kind of tie back to uh, maybe a story out of the life of Jesus. Others a parable and one that we might modernize in some particular way. So there's all kinds of ideals floating around in our head as to what do we mean when we talk about uh, this idea of using story when we minister with the Word of God. Well, the framework for me, at least as I approach this, and I hope you'll be able to relate to this in some ways, uh, as you might notice, I'm probably one of the oldest people in the room. So I am not on a college campus working in a more academic environment. As a matter of fact, about a year and a half ago, I retired from the corporate environment. And about 10 years before I retired from the corporate environment, uh, God had really put it on my heart that somehow we've got to find a way to minister where we work. Okay? Uh, I knew that we were doing a really good job, or at least you guys were doing a really good job in the campus environment and all the things that were going on in focus. But I knew that the day was coming from every, for every one of you, like it came for me, where you had to step off the campus environment and you have to get out into the real everyday world. 
And what you don't want to have happen is to see that your ministry just dries up and there's nothing going on anymore. Right? I'm assuming that's what you want for your lives. Well, I find myself, uh, after several years in full-time ministry and many years out of full-time ministry, asking God, past just getting up and preaching, how do I connect with people in the corporate world, in the adult world, where we don't have as much time to work with, where there's much more skepticism built into their lives, where there's so many things that are going on that seem to block God's ministry in their life. What can we do in order to reach those people? And I realized that there were all kinds of obstacles. As I started reaching out, I worked at a place very close to here, uh, over on Telecom Parkway, Fujitsu Network Communications. And I knew a lot of people over there. I'd had good fortune by God to kind of put me in some roles that made me visible uh, to people. But I was looking for a way to engage them in God's ministry and to reach out to them. And I began to realize that we face a lot of obstacles out there in the adult world. Some of them are also in the campus world uh, that, that need to be dealt with. For example, we function in a soundbite world. Okay, you realize that, don't you? We function in a soundbite world. We're not a people anymore that thinks really deeply about things in life and really reason things out. We'd rather grab hold of some phrase, some connector, and let it try to summarize everything for us. And we do it in Christianity as well. And the problem is it doesn't work very well. Let me give you an example. One of our phrases that we like to use whenever life gets hard, we'll say something like, God is in control. Okay? That's just a soundbite that we latch on to. And maybe for that moment in your life, it's very comforting to know that God is in control in your life, and somehow this is all going to work out. But when you mention that phrase to somebody who's not a believer, not a disciple of Jesus, and they're seeing things going on in their life that are very bad and very uncomfortable and seem to have no end in sight, they'll look at you and say, oh, really? Well, I don't like the control that your God is exercising in my life. And we have some explaining to do about what's going on in life. But we latch on to these sound bites. A few years ago, I got really interested in, uh, in American history. And I, it taught me a lesson that really frightened me about where we are as a culture and a society today. If you go back in American history, you remember the, the speech that was made uh, by Patrick Henry that give me liberty or give me death. Uh, speech that he made that kind of stands out in our American heritage. Well, if you go back and you research that, kind of a couple of interesting facts comes out. Number one, when he gave that speech, he did that totally extemporaneously. It was not anything that he had prepared word for word and written out or even had an outline form. He just gave that out of the passions of his heart at that particular moment. Well, that's kind of amazing in and of itself, but I, I can relate to that because I like to speak that way myself. What was more amazing is to realize that there was no one there transcribing that speech with a recorder or a dictaphone or whatever they would have used back then. Do you realize that the speech that was made was written down by someone who was sitting in the audience and he heard that speech in all of its entirety, and went back home and wrote it out almost in its entirety. That's not a level of thinking that we're at anymore in our society. We, we, we just 
We're not doing that. We're not listening that carefully and that deeply. So here I am trying to work within a culture uh, that functions out of these sound bites in their life, and there's a lot of soundbite theology that's out there. And then as I try to explain something to them, they ask me a question about this God that I have that's in control. Then I begin to realize they have no framework to even process what I'm saying to them. 15 years ago, 20 years ago as a minister, if I went out and met someone, there's a pretty good chance that they had some basic Bible knowledge for me to work with. There was a frame of reference for me to attach to and to begin to explain and to walk them through things. Now we live within a culture that really has no frame of reference for our teaching. That's a challenge. I remember one morning sitting in a circle of men who were praying about how to reach their culture, adult men, men more my age, and they were just flustered with, where do I even start to answer some of their questions because of this loss of frame of reference? And guess what? Our religious language doesn't help us at all, okay? Probably doesn't even help us as much as we think that it does, but it doesn't help us at all when we start trying uh, to reach out. And then as I began to minister there at Fujitsu, I had met some men, and I began to disciple them, and I had three guys in particular, and I realized that my retirement was coming, and I wanted that ministry to continue there, and I began to think, how can I raise up these guys quickly so that they can take over doing what I'm doing? And I sat down, and I had a conversation with them, and the first thing that they said to me, Tom, there is no way we can do this. We didn't go to seminary. We haven't had 20 years of training. How in the world can you expect to to deposit this ministry with us and and kind of give it into our hands and expect that it's actually going to go somewhere? There were challenges everywhere that I looked in communicating, raising up leaders, getting things to actually stick in the minds of people. And then if you get into the corporate world, you begin to understand that everybody's minds are filled with corporate data over and over and over. Uh, I shared with my, one of my stepdaughters a few weeks ago because of a situation with her and her uh, fiancé. And I told her, I said, Brittany, you need to realize that, that corporate exhaustion is real. When he comes home and he's exhausted, it's because his mind has been drained with all the things that he's had to process along the way. So all this was stirring in my mind as I began to deal with all this. And... Uh, I began to ask, what's the deal? Some of these men, educated men, men with college degrees, men that were smart and intelligent, I couldn't even give them a book and ask them to read because you know what? As a country, we're not readers anymore. You know, If you think you're going to solve your problem by just handing off a book to someone, it's probably not going to happen. Now, maybe it does in the campus world for a little while, in that academic world, but it's just not going to happen. And so as this all began to process in my mind, I began to beg God to show me how do I minister in in this particular world? How does this work so that I can raise up other leaders, so that I can give them a framework and a context uh, to discuss all these things? God began to unveil with me this ideal of story. And I realized one day that every time I went home for a family reunion, or every time that I got with my son, just sitting around the fire at our little cabin, he was always saying to me, Dad, tell me that story about the time that Papa did this. 
And he didn't need me to tell him that story because he could tell it himself, word for word. But there were values, there was identity, there, there was who we are that came out of those stories that we would sit around and tell. And I began to realize that story stood right at the center of the message of God. You realize that the Bible is just full of stories. But they make up one great story that is an utterly amazing story for us uh, to tap into. And that's the direction that I begin to go. Now, I don't have time to cover everything I would like to cover this morning. But I would invite you sometime just to go back and read. Pick out one of the Gospels and read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. And just watch Jesus as a storyteller. Because he tells stories over and over and over. We call them parables, but they're really short stories. They highlight a very important truth about God and about us and how God and us gets together. We're all connected through those parables that he told. Even in what we would, if we go back and look at what we call the Sermon on the Mount, the closest thing that Jesus has to a sermon, as we would give one, he finishes up with this incredible story about the wise man and the foolish man and building the house upon the rock and gives us something visual that we can attach to to say, you better treat my teaching seriously. He was so invested in those stories that he was telling. Let me give you this because I'm going to forget at the end. I want you to write this down. If you, uh, I can't cover everything, so I want you to attach to two books that I, that I think you will find very valuable if you want to uh, pursue this ideal story. And literally, I'm interrupting what I'm saying because I'm going to forget if I don't. Okay? Two books, Truth That Sticks by Avery Willis. Okay? Truth That Sticks is an amazing book about how to use story in ministry. This was a man that went into a culture uh, that did not have a written language and was faced with the challenge of how do you preach the gospel to someone that doesn't have a written language so they can open up their Bible to read it. And it dawned on him that really for the first nearly 2,000 years of Christianity, there was no Bible for anyone to read. And the church did well for a long time just relating the stories about Jesus. Excellent book written from an excellent spiritual perspective. Another book not written from a spiritual perspective is Made to Stick by uh, Chip and Dan Heath. Not written for a church perspective at all, but it has one chapter in there, particularly on on story and why story is so valuable uh, to us. I would recommend you read some of those things. They will help you immensely as you move into your adult ministry Uh, probably help you in in your campus ministry as well to kind of tap into the powers of story. I want to spend a few minutes. um, I want to give you an example of how I've used this, but but I want to share with you quickly. I'm going to rely upon you to go back and fill some of this in later. But I want to tell two stories that kind of highlights where I'm coming from this morning. It's the story of two kings. These are real-life kings. You can find them both in the Bible. They lived about a 1,000 years apart. But they found themselves in very, very similar circumstances. If you were to go, for example, it's in several of the Gospels. In Mark chapter 6, you'll find this guy who was a king uh, in in the Judean area. His name was Herod. 
And he proves to be quite a pain for Jesus and his ministry. Um, but here was Herod's situation. We know from history that he had made a trip back to Rome. And while he was in Rome, his brother and his brother's wife were there. And he really gave his heart to his brother's wife. He was just, he gave in to his passions. He decided to pursue her. And he decided that he was going to have her. So he took his brother's wife and took him away from his brother and took her back home and married her and lived in that adulterous condition for a long time in his life. There was a prophet of God that lived there during that time. We know him as John the Baptist. Okay? So John the Baptist, sent by God, goes to him, and we don't get a very full description of what John actually says to him, but he, he just puts it this way. What you, are not, what you are doing is not okay with God. It breaks the commandments of God. I don't know how you picture that. I could actually see him referring back to the Pentateuch, Referring back to the book of Exodus, to one of the Ten Commandments, and saying, Remember what God said to us, thou shalt not commit adultery. And that's how he approached him in trying to solve that problem. We'll come back to how that worked in just a minute. The other king that I want you to think about is about a thousand years prior to that. We know him as the great king of Israel. We know him as King David. Okay. David, you can find this in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11 and chapter 12. If you want to go back and read this, I suggest that you do. David finds himself kind of at the peak of his kingship. He's defeated so many of his enemies, and he's brought the kingdom of God, the physical kingdom of God, to kind of its crowning glory there for a moment, uh, more than it had ever been before. But in one brief moment, he fails to go out, and to be with the people that are fighting the battles. And he stays at home. And he goes up on the rooftop. You've probably heard the story. And he sees this beautiful woman bathing. And her name was Bathsheba. And he brings Bathsheba to him. And she gets pregnant with his child. And then he embarks on a very ambitious cover-up scheme. He, he invites her husband back from the battlefield. He encourages him to go and, and to be with his wife so they can kind of blame the baby on him. But it doesn't work out because Uriah will not go be with his wife. And so he, he tries a little harder and he covers this up a little bit more. He decides that he's going to send Uriah out into battle, put him at the front of the battle, withdraw the, the troops from him, and have him be killed accidentally in battle. And that's exactly what happens. And he brings Bathsheba to live with him. Now, they both had a very similar situation. They both gave their hearts to a woman that was not their wife, that belonged to another man. They were both in a bad place in terms of, of the eyes of God. In fact, God said of David, you have sinned in my sight. There's another man of God by the name of Nathan that comes to David. And he begins to talk to him, not quite like John the Baptist talked to Herod. He tells him a story. Okay. Do you remember the story? He walks in before the king. He says, king, I want to tell you something. There is this city. The king's probably thinking this city in my kingdom. There is this city here where there is rich man. And this rich man has all the flocks all the animals, everything that he could ever need. He's just overflowing with abundance, and, uh, and he just has everything he ever needs. There's a poor man in that same city. 
And this poor man is so poor that all he can do is afford one little ewe sheep. And the way you read it in there, you'll find out it became a family pet. It's like he brings it to his table and he takes some of his bread and he feeds the little sheep there at his table and he lets him drink out of his wine glass and then he goes down to recline at night and he puts him on his lap and strokes him. And he says, the man actually says, it's just like having my, it's a daughter to me. And then the rich man has this visitor come into town. And when the visitor comes into town, he wants to prepare a feast for him, but he decides not to use any of his sheep or of his flock or any of out of his wealth. So he goes and he takes away this pet lamb from the poor guy, sacrifices it, has the feast for the guy. And David, whose heart has been totally in cover-up mode, is absolutely enraged at what he sees. And he says, this man should die. And goes on to say, he should pay back to him fourfold for everything that he's taken away from him. Two similar circumstances. Okay? One king, living with his brother's wife. The man of God comes before him and saying, you're in sin. Another king, living with one of his soldier's wives. The prophet God comes before him and tells him a story. Now, I want to suggest to you there's a lot of lessons that we could learn from David's situation. But one of the things I've noticed about human nature is that we can see sin a lot easier in somebody else's life than we can see it in our own life. And so it was so much easier for David to listen to that story and get the picture of what was going on and actually get his heart passionate about putting things right. His heart wasn't there before. His heart was passionate about covering things up. Well, to me, when I look at those two stories, I see a couple of things. I'm not telling you one prophet was better than the other prophet. One of them basically quoted a scripture to him to try to change his life around. Another one told the story. And you're going to find situations in your ministry where both of those are appropriate. But one of them might get your head taken off. One of them may open up a door that was not previously open to go through, as as with what happened in David's situation. So you begin to see the power of story. As Casey was saying earlier, stories is what life is all about. One of the things that's concerned me for a long time in, in Christian America is we've gotten very academic about our Christianity. We've gotten really deep you know, and understanding the details and, 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 and everything we do. I mean, I understand that. I was raised in that. When I, when I went to seminary, I was raised in what we called systematic theology. And as Brandon pointed out this morning, the Bible is not a book of systematic theology. The Bible is a story of what God is doing in our life that we can connect with. And so I know what it's like to exegete a a passage. But I'm telling you, if you take a parable that Jesus tells and you exegete it, it, you're overthinking it. Do you hear what I said? A parable was designed to very simply illustrate a point and to make that truth so obvious and so clear that even those that were hard-hearted could get it. If they were going to get it at all, they would get it through that story. 
That's the power that lies in the story. If you want to know someone, you ask them, tell me your story. If you want to know about the trouble your kid got into last night, you ask them, what's going on? What happened? What you're saying is, tell me the story. You know, what happened? The thing is, story is accessible to everyone. When I went back up to Fujitsu and began to talk to these guys, I switched over to story in my ministry. And within a few weeks, these guys were leading our studies, telling stories and learning how to interact with it. Those that were very young in their faith were able to sit down and tell a story. And we trained them in in how to do that. And it was amazing the things that began to happen. Um, I want to give you just an example. A lot of other things I'd like to say, but I I want to kind of show you how this worked out. This is one way, okay, of applying this idea of story to ministry. In this case, it was was in the corporate environment. So at Fujitsu back several years ago, Uh, I knew that somehow I had to connect with other people of faith within that corporation. So I began to search for people who would just meet with me once a month and pray for our company. That's just how it got started. And so I began to to meet people, and and we had people that would come. They'd be off and on about who would be there, and we would pray for the company. And then one day, I told them, here's what I want to do. I want to do this thing that I call a story and a conversation. That was the title of it. Just a story and a conversation. And I want to ask you to invite people that you know that work here to come. And we're going to do this for just six weeks. Once a week. It was a Friday at noon. uh, During our lunch period, we did this story and a conversation. And we promised them we won't ask them to come any more than that. But just come and check it out and see what's going on. Because I would learned a long time ago in the corporate world, if you invite people to a Bible study, (laughs) Bible study is a dirty word. In corporate America, unfortunately, it really is. But story and a conversation kind of equated to them like, oh, they're not going to preach to me. He's going to tell me a story. We'll talk. It was interesting the things that began to happen. There were two people in particular that came to this six-week series. Uh, Interesting people, to say the least. This happened right about the time I was leaving the company. One of them was uh, a young woman who had no background at all in the Bible, no Christian faith to build upon, no place to even start. And she said, I I don't know if I can connect at all, but I want to come and listen to the story. So she came. There was another guy there that blew me away that he came because he worked in the same department where I was, and he was absolutely bitter and enraged about Christianity. He said, I am an atheist. And every day I'd see something on Facebook about, yeah, that's those dirty Christians doing what they do again. They're just trying to take your money away from you and whatever. He was just ranting and raving. When he walked in to our first story in the conversation, I thought, oh, my goodness. (laughs) This could be interesting to see what happens here. So those were the kind of the two first people that came into this story in the conversation. So let me just kind of share with you how this was set up. So what I was trying to do was to give some of the people just a framework of what the, what's going on in the Bible. What is God doing in our world? So this story in the conversation was set up to have six lessons. And each one of these lessons was the story, was somebody's story. Like the first lesson was the story of Adam and Eve. Uh, the second lesson was Adam and Eve 2, kind of like Rocky 2. Adam and Eve 2. Okay. Anybody here remember Rocky? Anyway. Adam and Eve too, 
And, uh, and of course, that had to do, I know, with the fall, but I didn't tell them that. It was just Adam and Eve, too. And then we moved on uh, to Abraham. And from there, we went to Samuel. And each one of those had a particular point that I was trying to draw out along the way. But when we got through, the idea was they would get a feel for the whole Bible story. They'd have some frame of reference for us to talk more about in the future. So here's how we, here's how we conducted this. And it was really interesting to see it happen. So what I would do when we started the first story, I said, listen, I'm going to tell the story. And I'm going to tell you up front what questions I'm going to ask when I finish telling the story. And uh, the, there were four questions. They were, they were the same each week. If you do something like this, don't do this forever. Okay? It's okay for a few weeks, but don't do it forever. If this story, here's the wording. If this story is true, what does it tell you about God? I'm not saying you have to believe it. You don't have to believe there's a God. But if this story is true, what does it tell you about God? If this story is true, what does it tell you about you? If this story is true, how should you think differently? And if this story is true, is there something you should do differently? So I just gave him a heads up. We're going to do this every week. I'll tell the story. I'll ask those questions. We'll see what happens. So I had these three guys with me that I've been discipling for about a year. And I said, guys, don't let this die on me. Okay, if we get in there and everybody goes silent, you've got to step up and you've got to help this move. Those three guys never got a chance to say a word. The lady who had no Bible background and the young man who was an atheist totally dominated the conversation. Totally. Not, not in a bad way. And I remember telling the creation story, just kind of relating that on the Adam and Eve story day. And I tell this and I'm like, okay, first question is, if this story is true, what do we, you know, what do we learn about God? And I had on my sheet of paper on the side five or six things that I would highlight if nobody said anything. But this lady who knew nothing about God, nothing about the Bible, the first thing she said, man, as I listen to that, it seems like God really has a heart to do good. Wasn't even on my list. I'd walked right by it. You know, I had all the standard things were made in his image, and what does that mean, and, you know, all those type things. She says, I just can't believe how God just seems so intense. I mean, at every turn, he wanted to do good, and he was delighted when good happened. And I'm sitting there thinking, atheist guy, are you hearing this? <laughs> you know? And the atheist guy engages, and he says, yeah. He said, that's not what I really pictured at all about God. I always thought that God was the, kind of there wanting to beat me up. He, he knew everything that I was doing wrong. And, and he goes on and he talks and, and the conversation goes nonstop to where I just have to, I have to end it. Now listen to what I did at the end. This is important. I say to them, everybody heard this story today. I want to ask you between now and next week, find someone to go tell this story to. Could be your husband, could be your wife, could be your child, whatever. So I'm like, oh, I don't know if this is going to work or not, but we'll see what happens. Actually, the two visitors did better than my disciples did <laughs> at that. So we started out the next week, and I said, how did it go? Did you tell the story? And the lady proceeds to tell me, yeah, I sat down with my two kids, and I told them this story, and they thought it was so cool. And I'm thinking, here's a woman that a week ago knew nothing about the Bible, and this week she's sitting down telling Bible stories to her children. 
How cool is that? You know. And then the atheist guy, I thought, probably I know he didn't tell it to anyone, but he's married to a lady that is a Christian. Okay? And he said, he goes home, he said, honey, I've got to tell you this Bible story that I learned up at work today. (laughs) And I swear, she said, no, I'm not interested. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Help me out with your husband. And so I asked him, I said, well, Chris, I said, what did you do? He said, I told it to my dog. (laughs) I said, I'll take it. (laughs) I'll take it. A guy avowing himself to be an atheist the week before is now preaching the gospel to his dog. It's a good start. Well, what we would do each week as we went through these things, we started out by saying, okay, what do you remember from the week before? Okay, tell me the story that we told last week. And so we would literally just go around the circle and people would talk about, well, God did this, he created this and then that, and they, would, they just kind of rehearsed the story and they kind of set it in their mind. Let me tell you something. By the time we finished that six weeks going through those stories, I had two people that knew nothing about the Bible who could recite the entire Bible storyline. Why my three disciples guys sit back like (laughs) watching them. And I thought again, how cool is this? You know. So we get towards the end. I'm probably running out of time here. But we get towards the end, and uh, we're finishing this up at at the end of the stories. They tell the whole Bible story, Ryan, that they rehearse it. And I said, well, you know, guys, uh, six weeks is up. This is all I asked you uh, to commit to, you know, during this time. But I'm really glad you came. I hope it was something that was meaningful to you. And the guy who was an atheist says, whoa, 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 wait a minute. You're not saying we're stopping, are you? And I said, well, that's all I asked you to commit to. I kind of played along with it, you know, for a minute. And he said, listen, he said, I I didn't used to believe in God. He said, I know I'm not a disciple yet. I haven't really got the whole thing. He said, but I don't want to stop now. This is the first time I've ever learned anything about God. So we did more stories, (laughs) you know, and, uh, he now has disavowed his atheism. He's still not yet a disciple, but he, is, he will tell you, he said, I am fighting for faith. And at every turn, he has to try to overcome the things that, that have held him back for so long. The woman that came that had no Bible background uh, continued with the studies. We started studying with her individually, something equivalent to like a focus on Jesus. And she was baptizing Garland back while y'all away at winter camp last year all happening through the power of stories to work in their life. So I'm not suggesting to you that story is for every situation, but I have found that it opened up a ministry to me that had been shut down. Uh, Long ago, there was a book called Who Moves My Cheese? Ronnie and I in ministry have both felt that. You know, it's like the way we used to do ministry just doesn't seem to be effective anymore. I believe with all my heart that God has showed me that working through story has opened up avenues that that were long gone to me. 
And it's just cool to see that happen. Now, this is not the only way that you can use stories. I've used stories in discipling in many other ways. Uh, but I just wanted to kind of introduce the idea to you, put something in front of you, and to get things going, you know, in your mind. So I want to leave you with two questions. I didn't give them any one, so they won't be on the screen, um, which is code for I'm making them up right now. Uh, uh, but I'd like for you to do two things in your questions with each other. One is, I'd like for you to revisit the story of, of, uh, of David when Nathan came to him and used a story to reach to him and ask yourself the question, what made that work for David? What was it about the story that enabled him to open up? Just kind of what were the dynamics going on there that helped him along the way? And the second thing I'd like to ask is for you to name somebody to go tell a Bible story to this week. Pick a story. Don't care what it is. Just pick a story. Go to someone and say, I read this coolest story. Can I tell it to you? And see what happens this week. Okay? Thank you, guys. Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.